Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 14, The Richest City on Earth. Last episode, I spoke about the tariffs known as the Corn Laws and the effects that they had had on both the people and the economy. For my benefit, I'd ask you to go listen to that. Hey, every download does count, but the short version of that episode is that the repeal of these laws were instrumental in bringing free trade to the United Kingdom. This bolstered their economy and, in my opinion, was one of the deciding factors in the robust economy of the latter half of the 1800s in the United Kingdom. And the questions I posed were as follows. What would it be like if your government could pay off all their existing debts? That the money they had coming in went towards society rather than paying off debts. I certainly can't see this happening today. Governments talking at trillions of dollars in debts and I don't see resources being there that could go towards cleaning up such debts. But in the 1800s, that's exactly what happened. And it came from probably the furthest point in the empire on which the sun never set. Where is this magical place that had the ability to change the history of the United Kingdom? I hear you ask. Well, it's actually our first time in the podcast leaving the United Kingdom. We're off to Australia, to the state of Victoria, to the capital city of Melbourne. My hometown. So if you have a rough idea of the shape of Australia, Victoria is on the mainland bottom right hand corner. Just above it is New South Wales, the capital of which is Sydney. That's where the Harbour Bridge is that pretty much everyone knows. The little island at the bottom is Tasmania, which was known as Van Diemen's Land at the time. There are a couple of big islands not that far away to the right of the map. That's New Zealand, but we don't care about them. We're Aussies. They're Kiwis, and it's just a standing cultural thing that we throw shade on each other every chance we get. It's kind of a family thing. Anyway, in the early 1800s, the state of Victoria was actually a part of the state of New South Wales. John Batman was an entrepreneur and grazier and explorer living in Van Diemen's Land but was interested in moving to the mainland, given the large bay and harbour available at the very south of the continent. So in 1835, he travelled to what became known as Port Phillip Bay and the land just north of the bay. This will be the place for a village, he is quoted as having stated before returning home. But being a white colonialist, before he left, he reportedly <coughs> negotiated <coughs> with the local Aboriginal elders for 600,000 acres. 
However, that treaty was annulled by the New South Wales Governor Richard Burke and compensation was paid to the Aborigines. As a bit of trivia, the main shopping thoroughfare of Burke Street in Melbourne's CBD is actually named after him. In 1837 though, the settlement became known as Melbourne, named for the British Prime Minister William Lamb, the second Viscount Melbourne. Throughout the following years, the surrounding lands were taken from the Aboriginal communities in the traditional colonial fashion. They took what they wanted and dispossessed the locals. On the 25th of June 1847, Queen Victoria declared Melbourne a city and then later on July 1st, 1851, what was known as the Port Phillip District became the colony of Victoria with the city of Melbourne as its capital. Gold had already been found in Australia as early as 1823, but it was first found in Victoria in the town of Clunes, which, as a bit of trivia, is the town my own grandmother was actually born in. Later finds in central Victoria in towns such as Beechworth, Castlemaine, Dalesford, Ballarat and Bendigo meant people realised that they were sitting, literally, on a gold mine. Oh, and if you ever visit Victoria, they're all towns I recommend you visit. Great restaurants, sights to see, and you can still visit a working mine in Bendigo. By 1851, when what became known as the Victorian Gold Rush began, there were fortunes to be made. And it wasn't just small amounts of gold. Ultimately, from 1850 to 1900, the California Gold Rush actually produced more gold but I do feel obligated to say that in Victoria's defence, it's only half the size of California in land area. But in 1856 alone, over 95,000 kilos of gold was mined. And Melbourne was now the richest city on earth. I tried to create a monetary figure to give you some idea, but despite looking through archived newspapers from the time and looking at old financial reports from the 1800s, in the end I went with using modern pricing for an ounce of gold. So as best as I can calculate money-wise, in 1856, Victoria produced over $4.3 billion in gold in US currency. These riches on offer changed Australia, and in particular, Victoria, forever. People came from all over the world seeking their fortune, just as they had with the Californian and the 49ers gold rush. In 1851, the population of Victoria was just 75,000. Ten years later, the population was half a million. But such growth means not all smooth sailing. Among the many nationalities coming here were the Chinese. To this day, there are strong ties with the Chinese, particularly in Bendigo, where many of them worked hard to make money for a better life. Many Europeans would work an area for gold, and once all the easy work had been finished, they moved on. The Chinese would then buy these claims and slowly, laboriously, would sift through what had been abandoned, finding much smaller amounts of gold at a time, but ultimately finding far more than anyone expected. Humans being what they are, this success was met with resentment. 
Who were these strange people from a strange land, eating their own foods and talking such a foreign language? But they persevered, and the Chinese community still has a strong place in country Victoria to this day. In Bendigo, there's the Golden Dragon Museum covering their history in Australia. I highly recommend visiting that if you do get a chance. The state of Victoria had become a melting pot of cultures, languages and hopes for a better future. And administering that costs money. So the government brought in gold licences. These cost 30 shillings a month. Today, that would be nearly 200 US dollars a month. So you have to be making at least that much money a month just to pay the government, let alone your other expenses. And if you didn't pay, the fine was around 750 US dollars. A second charge would see you imprisoned for six months. Enforcing that men had their gold licenses was under the jurisdiction of the police. And many of the police in Victoria at that time were ex-convicts from what is now Tasmania. So they went from prisoner to authority, and don't you just know how they loved that social power? No surprises, friction began between the population and the authorities. It didn't help that under the law, half the fine went to the informer or the police officer prosecuting the charge. Vested interest much? The authorities dropped the price to one pound in 1853, which was about a 30% reduction, but still the miners weren't happy. After all, you could be fined for not having your license on you while you were working your claim, even though they had the records in the office saying that you were paid up. But the times they were a changing, as the song goes, and the 20,000 or so voters on the Ballarat goldfields alone were starting to feel very much a case of no taxation without representation, as their needs were ignored in the state parliament, all while they were meant to be paying these high licence fees. On October 6th, 1854, Scottish miner James Scobie was killed at the Eureka Hotel near the town of Ballarat. His friends said that the ex-Tasmanian convict owner of the hotel, a man named Bentley, had killed Scobie. Yet Bentley walked from court, having the case dismissed by a judge who was purportedly in the pocket of the hotel owner. Miners in the area had a meeting deciding that they wanted to lodge a formal protest against this case dismissal. By all accounts, the meeting was peaceful, right up until the police tried to disperse the meeting. Fighting with the police and property damage saw three men, none of whom were even proved to have done anything at all, being sentenced to imprisonment. On November 11th, what became known as the Ballarat Reform League was formed, and to give you some idea of the multicultural pot that was the goldfields in Victoria at the time, the prominent members included a Welshman, an Australian, an Italian teacher, an Irishman, a German, and an Englishman. If they all walk into a bar, I'm sure we have the beginnings of a joke, but nevertheless, Their request for the release of the imprisoned men was ignored, and so in protest two weeks later, those of the Ballarat Reform League burned their gold licences. In response, the authorities hunted for those without licences, escalating tensions no end. But this time, the League weren't 
backing down. Irish-Australian Peter Laylor was voted in as their sole leader. A flag was created, blue with the stars of the Southern Cross constellation on it. The men swore to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. So you know this isn't going to end in having beers at the pub at the end of the day. I'll post a picture of the flag on the Instagram account so you know what I'm talking about. But even to this day, it is still a common symbol here in Australia. Taking possession of about an acre of land near the Eureka Hotel, the League began to build a stockade. A German blacksmith began forging pikeheads. A group of Californians were armed with revolvers. Obviously, this was unacceptable to the powers that be. You can't go protesting and building forts, after all. And on the 3rd of December, military forces attacked the blockade. The force captain was killed, along with four of his men. 16 miners were killed. Peter Laylor himself was badly wounded. A musket ball had shattered bones in his arm. But he was missed in the search of the stockade and managed to escape unlike 114 of his companions who were taken prisoner. Laylor managed to get to the home of a man he knew. Steve Cummins knew of the reward that was on offer for his friend. £200. That's about 25000 today. And yet he did not report him. Here in Australia, that's what's called being a mate. But Cummins did know that they would come looking for Laylor. So he helped him get to a local presbytery where a doctor was brought in to amputate his arm. As I said though, the times they were a-changing. Because from being a wanted man in 1854, a year later would see Lalo elected to being a member of parliament for Victoria. His reputation as a hero of what became known as the Eureka Stockade cemented his place among the working classes as a man of the people. During a speech in the Legislative Council in 1856, he said, quote, I would ask these gentlemen what do they mean by the term democracy? Do they mean chartism or communism or republicanism? If so, I never was. I am not now, nor do I ever intend to be a Democrat. But if a Democrat means opposition to a tyrannical press, a tyrannical people, or a tyrannical government, then I have been, I am still, and will ever remain a Democrat. End quote. Holding a variety of political offices and business interests, he later married Alicia Dunn and they had a son and daughter. He died in 1889 at the age of 62. But this protest had a huge effect on the long-term identity of Australians and Victorians specifically. The legacy today is one that sees Australians almost having a cultural questioning of authority to the point of belligerence. Hey, you can be in charge. Just don't tell me what to do, okay?
But despite events like this, the gold still flowed back to the United Kingdom. Every year an absolute fortune was pumped into an economy that had very big bills. But because of the amount of gold from Victoria alone, the kingdom was able to pay their debts. All of them. We all see reports today of how much our countries owe, our economy is in such and such a state, and owes X amount of, insert your choice of currency here. So imagine all the social causes that could be funded, the infrastructure that could be built, the explorations that could be funded, if all your incoming taxes didn't have to go towards paying existing debt. Last time I spoke about how the Corn Laws meant a revitalising of the economy. People could eat at a more affordable price. They had more money to spend on things other than their next meal. Businesses picked up customers and the money flowed throughout the society. Well, that was a great thing on its own. And then we add this week's economic factor, a fully paid up government. I said it's hard to make the pricing comparable, so using modern pricing it goes something like this. Over 61 million ounces of gold were taken from Victoria alone during the boom period 1851 to 1896. In today's prices that's around $87 billion. To me these two factors created an environment that allowed not just industrial revolution but a cultural one as well. Artists, philosophers, writers, poets, amazing explorers and inventors that would make products that to this day affect our lives, all these men and women were part of a modern age renaissance that created this gilded age. We think of when we watch a Sherlock Holmes movie or a TV series like Penny Dreadful. Cashed up and creative, is it any wonder there's so much to explore in the Victorian era? Oh, and a footnote to the story as well. I mentioned the origins of the name of our capital city that came from Viscount Melbourne. John Batman having decided on the location and Richard Burke having had a more long-term effect. I'm a huge fan of comics and for me, Batman has always been one of my favourites. I do love having a street in my hometown called Batman Avenue. But in 1837, before they called it Melbourne... The city was briefly called Batmania. Damn you, Richard Burke. <laughs> so here endeth the episode. Just a couple of quick points before I get to the usual spiel. Uh, there's a post on the Instagram account. Just check it out. It's Victorian Gas Lamp. Uh, it's a couple of days old now. It's a picture of a pipe. I want to give a huge thank you to Eden who sent that in to me. Uh, she'd found it at a antique store here in Melbourne, one of our suburbs in Mooney Ponds, I think she said it was. Uh, it's got like repeal written on it. And it's all a uh, bit of like merch from the time when the Corn Laws were being repealed which was pretty cool. So thank you very much for sending that in, Eden. I do appreciate it. <laughs> it looks really cool. And I'd also like to give a thank you to Nicole, who just sent a message through via Facebook, just saying that she really enjoys the podcast. Uh, I'll be keeping up the episodes, Nicole, so you get to keep enjoying it. Thank you very much for taking the time to write. I do appreciate it as well. And on that note, my website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp.com at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. 
happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening on Twitter at Vic Gaslamp and my Instagram account is Victorian Gaslamp. Post there probably a couple of times a week and I do it as a bit of a, an extra aside to the podcast itself. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>